Hi, I'm Colleen, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13. So remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent, who were called uncircumcised by Jews who were physically circumcised. At that time you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. In this world you had no hope and no God. But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who once were so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Diana. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading as it's found in Matthew 20, verses 8 through 16. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarian. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you again in a fresh way into this place and into our hearts. Open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts. Speak your words to us. Show Jesus to us. Change us. Let your grace abound to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. When New Life Downtown began about uh, a little over four years ago, we had just had our fourth child, and so some of you have kind of watched little baby Jane grow up, 
And some of you may also recall uh, when we first moved into Palmer High School, I was standing or sitting right up here, and in the middle of a sermon, Sophia, our oldest, walked up to me in the middle of the sermon because there was a crisis, and uh, she was trying to get my attention, and she said, Dad, except that all of you could hear her, and she said, Dad, we can't find Jane's passy, <laughs> pacifier. And, uh, and I just said, sort of said, well, hey, work it out, right? Because this, after all, was child number four that we're talking about. So par- something happens to parents along the way as you have more kids. You start to sort of say, oh, they'll figure it out. It's okay. They'll, they'll be okay, you know. But I remember when Sophia was born, and when we saw her, we thought, okay, we've got to do everything we can to keep the world and all of its evil from harming this little one, right? And, and so, they, uh, to, to be honest, the first couple of weeks of her life, in between feedings, you know, Holly would sleep, and I would stay awake and just put a hand on her back to make sure she was breathing. Just, I just had to be sure. I wanted to make sure that no mosquitoes came in. I mean, just keeping an eye. There's this thing in parents where something, you, you receive the gift, the anticipated thing, and then all of a sudden you're more aware of a threat. You receive the thing that you've been waiting for, and you're like, oh, this is so great. But now, all of a sudden, it's introduced a new kind of fear, a new kind of threat, a new kind of awareness of of danger and of harm in the world. This is where we are in the Genesis story. It began with God promising Abraham and Sarah not only land, but also descendants. And we've been following this journey of unbelief and of, and of uh, false starts and of nearly derailing the plan. Sarah almost derails it. Last week, Abraham almost derails it. And here we are now, and it's actually happening. Isaac arrives, except it feels anticlimactic. Because actually, when you read Genesis 21, this birth of Isaac part of it, it gives you the first couple verses, and then all of a sudden it goes into this other section of the narrative, and this is very much like what happens to us in life. You receive the waited-for thing, and then all of a sudden it's introduced new problems. It reminds me a little bit of the story of The Hobbit. Now, I know, you know maybe you've seen the movies. I personally think that uh, Peter Jackson ruined the book by turning The Hobbit into a trilogy because it's not meant to be the same as The Lord of the Rings. But we'll leave that aside for a moment, okay? In the book, you're kind of waiting the whole thing. The, the, the villain that's set up in the book is the dragon. Who is going to kill the dragon? Except when it actually happens, you realize the dragon's not the point, right? In fact, when you get there, it's almost sort of this very quick thing. All of a sudden, the dragon's dead, and all the gold in, in the mountain is theirs, and you're like, great, this is awesome. This is what we've been waiting for. Except that the real dilemma is how jealousy and rivalry and resentment and old, old griefs that they have with one another come to create this war between brothers. That is the story of Genesis 21, a story that should be one of only joy quickly turns to jealousy, resentment, and an old thread of rivalry. If you've got your Bible, open up with me to Genesis 21 verse 1 or scroll there, dial there, whatever it is. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, in the first couple verses, over and over again, this phrase, just as God said, as God had spoken, it's meant to show us that God keeps his word. 
It's meant to show us that God is faithful, that He wasn't just sort of making Abraham feel good by making these promises. No, God said it would happen, and it happens. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So now, not only is God doing what God said he would do, but Abraham is doing what God told him to do. Everything here rests on this word of God. Abraham was a hundred years old, and when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, everyone who hears will laugh over me. This is the joy of a promise fulfilled. This is the sound of laughter because the unbelievable, the unthinkable, the miraculous has happened. Laughter is actually a recurring theme in these first nine verses of Genesis uh, 21. If you were reading it in the Hebrew, you would see there's this root word, sahak, that shows up. It shows up three times in the name of Isaac, but it also shows up twice just as the word laugh. And then it shows up once when Ishmael will mock Isaac. But in these first nine verses, six times, some form of the word laugh or laughter shows up. There's a good kind of laughter. There's a good kind of laughter when you think, oh my goodness, you know, the sort of laughter that I experienced in my home at the Super Bowl party in February of this year when we knew, baby, that we were going to win this thing, right? Seems like a distant memory now, but... Back then, it was a promise fulfilled. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says, Laughter is a biblical way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. What a line. Laughter is the Bible's way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. You can't explain it, but something new, something unexpected, something that has come out of nowhere. It wasn't that you said, well, we've always seen it leading to here, this point all along. It's not the inevitable culmination of a journey. It's something surprising. Because listen, when something's been leading there all along, you just say, well, yep, totally saw that coming. But when something appears out of nowhere, you just, you have no words. You're like, oh my gosh, Wow! Von Miller with the strip sack fumble! Sorry, still living in the past. (laughs) Laughter is a biblical way of receiving a newness which cannot be explained. The psalmist picks up on this. Psalm 126, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter. And our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Have you ever had a moment like that? Have you ever had a moment in your life when you're like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that came through. I can't, where, Lord, wow! (laughs) And you just, you, you have nothing else to say or do except to laugh and say, The Lord has done great things for us. I think of different ones of you, and I know there have been moments in your life when this has happened. When something out of the the norm, out of the blue it seems, occurred, and you're like, wow, this is incredible. This is the moment for Abraham and Sarah. And yet, it doesn't take long before the laughter of the one who rejoices is eclipsed by the laughter of the one who mocks. The laughter of the the one who rejoices is eclipsed by the laughter of the one who mocks. Verse 8, 
And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing, possibly with the tone here of mocking. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. Now, a couple things. You remember, especially the Old Testament storytellers, they are very particular in how they name characters, right? Whose son does Sarah call Ishmael? Her son. She won't even say it's Abraham's son. She won't even say it's her husband's son. It's the slave woman's son, her son. Cast out this woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. A line has been drawn between her son and my son. Her son, my son. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. All of these possessive pronouns matter. Take her son. She's, he's not going to have a part with my son. And Abraham was sad on account of his son. Abraham stuck because they're both his sons. And of course he knows Isaac is the son of laughter. Isaac is the promised son. But Ishmael is also his son. And the Old Testament storyteller won't let us forget that. It won't let us take Sarah's lens and say, my son, her son. Here's the line, us, them. The Old Testament storyteller wants us to know that Abraham the man of faith, the man whose eyes we are supposed to experience this story through, is sad. Because Ishmael is also his son. I wonder for us how joy turns into jealousy. How does joy in our own lives, the surprising joy of a promise fulfilled, how does joy turn into jealousy? I wonder if one of the reasons it does is because we don't trust God to be faithful. I wonder if Sarah in this moment is thinking, okay, okay, it was a pretty precarious promise so far, but now that it's come, th come true, I can't have anybody sabotage this or jeopardize this. I can't. God's been faithful this far, but I don't want to press my luck. So let's get this guy out. There's an ancient law code, code called the Lipit Ishtar. I have not read it. Um, but this law code said that a father could free the son of a slave if he was the father of this son. And he could free the son of a slave woman, but even this freed son would never be an heir. In other words, even if Abraham maxed out his generosity, he could have made Ishmael free, he could have made Hagar free, but he could have never made Ishmael an heir. In other words, Ishmael was never a threat to Isaac's inheritance. He was never really a threat to Isaac's inheritance, but in Sarah's eyes, he was. And I think this, ha this happens in my life all the time. When I think, when I start to perceive someone else as a threat, it's because I've stopped believing that God will be faithful to me. I've stopped believing that God will be faithful to me. And so I think, well, wait a minute. Wait, I, I don't want to take any... They, they, they can't do that. You can't do that. He can't have that. She can't do... Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever had that moment where you start to be protective? Like, well, this is my God. This is my blessing. This is my church. These are my friends. I can't... No, 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 no. 
And part of this is, is we have a bit of a scarcity mindset. We think if somebody else gets it, then there's less for me. If somebody else gets that, then, there, then there's not enough for me. Or we have this competitive mindset that says, if, if someone else is winning, that means I'm losing. So if Ishmael, if things go good for Ishmael, that means Isaac is losing. So, so look, if, if something good happens to her, that means less good for me. And we feel this. Maybe you feel this when you, when you look at people's Instagram pictures or their, their vacations or whatever, and you think, oh, look at them in their nice beach pictures. <laughs> and there's something about, all of a sudden, it doesn't even make any sense, but it's like their blessing makes you feel like you've been robbed of goodness. And all of a sudden, all of the good gifts in your life disappear. It's as if you have nothing good in your life. And you're like, well, I got nothing. Look at them. Look at what they have. And we stop believing that God is big enough to be faithful to both of us. That God is big enough to be faithful to all of us. In fact, one of the names for Yahweh early in Genesis is Al Shaddai. And, and there's a lot of discussion about what exactly that means. But there is this sense that it means the God who will be more than enough. The God who is big enough to bless Isaac and protect Ishmael. The God who can be faithful to both sons. But in the end... I think whenever we feel jealousy rising up or a little bit of competitiveness rising up, it, it may be because we don't believe, we don't believe that God will be faithful to us. I think it's maybe helpful if we think a little bit differently between coveting and jealousy. Coveting might be wanting what someone else has, but jealousy might be not wanting someone to have what you have, right? So you might say, well, I don't covet them. I don't really want what they have. But actually, I don't really want them to have what I have. They're different, right? I mean, Sarah's not saying, I wish I was Hagar. But she's saying, I don't want him to have what I have. I don't want him to have what my son has. So there's a difference here. We may not wrestle with covetousness, but we might wrestle with jealousy, the kind of jealousy that says, I don't want what they have, but I don't want them to have what I have. It's mine. My precious. <laughs> Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Now look at the pronouns God uses. He doesn't say, Sarah's slave woman, your slave woman, she's become more to you than just a slave woman. Because whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for, though Isaac shall, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Even God says, Abraham, he is your son. He is your son. You don't have to disown him. You don't have to cast him away and say, not my son. I've only got one blessed son. Praise the Lord. God says, it's your offspring, Abraham. You're right. You're right to care. But trust me with his future. Maybe joy turns to jealousy, not just because we don't trust God to be faithful, but because we don't want God to be merciful. 
We actually don't want God to be. I don't want you to be merciful to somebody else. I don't want you to do this for some. Again, we see this for, as a foreshadow almost of Jonah. When Jonah comes to the Ninevites, I mean, it's, the, it's almost like a comedic line in the prophets, right? Prophets are supposed to preach, and it's great news when people repent. Jeremiah thought it was awful that every time he preached, nobody repented. Jonah has the opposite problem. He preaches, everybody repents, and he's like, doggone it. I knew you would be merciful and long-suffering. You're like, this is, this is high comedy, right? And you see the root of this in Sarah saying, I don't want God to be merciful to anyone else. Jesus says this, we heard it in our gospel reading this morning. He replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? So take what belongs to you and go. I want to give this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? Ouch. I think the Lord... Every time we feel a little bit of that resentment rising up in us, and well, how come they, and how come he, and how come she, maybe that's the Holy Spirit's whisper. Maybe it's an invitation to say, God, do I really not want you to be merciful to someone? Do I resent you for being generous? We love God being generous to us, but the real test is how you respond when he's generous to someone else. To someone who we think does not deserve it. They don't deserve that, God. How, I've been a Christian my whole life. They don't deserve mercy. They, I resent your generosity, God. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever find yourself saying, okay, God, I get it if you want to have this person, but not that person. That, that person can't be in church. That, you, you can't. I think sometimes we secretly think, that God shows us because we're a good investment. You know, like God, God saved you and you're like, well, makes sense, Lord. Way to be an astute fund manager, you know. You've diversified your portfolio with a lot of excellent people. You know? But God, God allows rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God makes His mercies flow to all mankind. Who do we not want to receive His mercy? Who are we unwilling for God to show mercy upon? This next section of the chapter is maybe one of the most beautiful pieces in this story because of all the poetry in this. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning. Every time we've seen this phrase, I've called your attention to it. Abraham rose early in the morning. Abimelech went, got up early in the morning last chapter. Every time someone gets up early in the morning, it's to do what God has told them to do. It demonstrates eagerness. It demonstrates obedience. Abraham rose. In the next chapter, you'll see Abraham rising up early in the morning with Isaac to go take him to the altar. Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Oh, could you imagine this scene? It's one thing to be a refugee. It's another thing to be the father who's casting out his son. Verse 15. 
And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And with, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Do you hear Hagar's heart breaking here? It's amazing to me, but the storyteller actually gives much more space to the story of Hagar than it does to the story of Sarah. It's a hint about the heart of God. It's a hint about the heart of God. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. I mean, can you imagine? This is the plight of mothers all through the Middle East right now as they fled from their hometowns and their villages and their countries, left with no place to go, sitting down in shipping containers and under tents saying, Oh God, let me not hear the cry of a dying child. She sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy. Did you know that's actually what the name Ishmael means? That God hears. His very name means God hears. And the storyteller says, and God heard the voice of the boy where he is. Excuse me, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now if you're just even a casual observer of stories, you would know that this story is, is extremely parallel with the story that's coming next week. Abraham and Isaac, Hagar and Ishmael, both take their sons early in the morning. They face a difficult journey and an uncertain future. Both of them resign themselves to the reality that their son is going to die. In the next chapter, Abraham will say, Isaac, okay, he's going to die. Here, Hagar says he's going to die. And in both stories, God appears. God appears and provides away. God's surprising provision. See, we always talk about how God shows up and provides a ram in the thicket for Abraham and Isaac. But God showed up and provided a well in the wilderness for Ishmael. Church, God's mercy is for everyone. It's better than you think. It's richer than you imagined. It's stronger than you hoped. It's higher than you could ever dream. God's mercy is for everyone. It's not only for Isaac, it's also for Ishmael. The psalmist said, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. You give them drink. I wonder if the psalmist is thinking of this scene. A young son of an Egyptian slave woman cast out, left to die. But Yahweh is the God who gives everyone drink. Yahweh is the one who says, open your eyes, there's a well here, I have provided, I have made a way, there is water for you, there is grace for you, there is mercy for you. I think it's too easy for me, for you, for all of us to read these stories and imagine that we are Isaac. Well, I'm Isaac, I am the 
promised. I, I am the I'm the chosen. I'm blessed. I'm one. And, and, and whoever you don't agree with is Ishmael. Send them out. Cast them out. And you can make up all kinds of reasons for why you think other people don't belong in the house that God blesses. But Genesis 21 won't let you ignore that God blesses both sons. God blesses both sons. You know, Paul does the unthinkable. Paul in Romans, and Galatians rather, uses the story of Ishmael and Isaac, except do you know who he compares the Jews to? Ishmael. How insulting! Could you imagine being a Jew proud of being the true descendants of Abraham? We, our fathers, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the chosen seed. And Paul says, actually, let me use a metaphor here. You are just like the descendants of the slave woman. (gasps) And I think Paul is making a gospel point. Never imagine yourself to be Isaac when you might actually be Ishmael. Because without the mercy and grace of God, we would be cast aside in the wilderness. We would be left alone to die and to starve. Paul says this to the Ephesians, So remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent who were uncircumcised by Jews who are physically circumcised, at that time you were without Christ, all of us. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel, strangers to the covenant of God's promise. In this world you had no hope and no God. Sounds like Ishmael in the wilderness. Paul's saying, don't forget who you were. You were without hope and without God. But now, aren't you thankful for these two words? But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who once were so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. You who once were far away outside the house of blessing, but now you've been brought near. See, I can't help but think that the story of the Bible is full of stories of two brothers. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because he's threatened. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. And so it's no surprise when Jesus stands up one day and says, once there was a father who had two sons. And the younger son went afar and squandered his inheritance. And the older son says, Father, I've been in your house this whole time. You didn't throw a feast for me. When you read Luke 15, you actually discover that both sons leave the house. The prodigal went farther, but the older son refused to join the party. He left the house too. Both sons leave the house. And you know what's the most beautiful thing about it? The father goes after both sons. The father ran off on the road to meet the prodigal. And the father goes out to meet his oldest son. He says, what's going on? And by the way, that whole pronoun thing happens again in that story. The, the older brother says, that son of yours. And the father says, your brother, who was once dead, is now alive. We keep trying to do this, and God keeps trying to do this. This is the heart of the Father. 
I think there's this hint in the Old Testament that the heart of God has always been to call everyone, 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 everyone back to himself. That his mercy goes running after us. That his goodness follows us. And I think just as it made Abraham sad, I think it breaks the heart of the Father when we allow jealousy and resentment to cast others aside. Say, no, 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 not them. I will. And so I wonder this morning where we need to trust God's faithfulness. Where do we need to let go of resentment and celebrate God's mercy in someone else's life? What if you took a whole week, and I say this as a challenge to myself, what if you took a whole week and the only things you posted on Instagram was celebrating somebody else's blessings? Celebrating the mercy of God in someone else's life. What if we believe that God's blessing is big enough for Isaac and for Ishmael? You know what I think would happen? I think instead of resentment and jealousy, you would start to find gifts all around you. You start to say, you know what, I, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't, but you, I, I have this, and I have breath, and I have the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The saddest thing about this story is Sarah, who starts with the joy of laughter and ends with the fear of a, of a rival. How many gifts are we blind to in our own lives because all we see is the threat of someone else? When we begin to believe the mercy of God, when we begin to trust the faithfulness of God, when we begin to understand the heart of the Father to do this, all of a sudden we look at our own lives and we're like, wow, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for this. Look at this gift. Look at this gift. Look at this gift. Look at this gift. And it's not a forced exercise anymore. Gratitude begins to abound because we've seen the mercy of God. Amen?